Welcome to the Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Stick around for interviews, analysis, fan stories, and our love affair with Phoenix Rising. And now to kick things off is your host, Niall McCarthy. What's up, football-loving maniacs? This is Devin Kerr, and you're listening to the Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family, I'm delighted you're joining us today as we celebrate our 20th episode. It's a milestone for the Fan Experience podcast, and our love for Rising runs deep, and it runs strong, just like it did in our first episode, and in truth, well before that. This podcast has evolved since our first episode of the season, when we were joined by Phoenix Rising manager Bobby Dooley. He talked to us about what we could expect from the new stadium and the initiatives that he had planned for the team in the 2021 season. In that first episode, we also spoke with Devin Kerr, lead analyst for the USL, the United Soccer League. Devin is well known to Rising fans as he calls Phoenix Rising home games on ESPN Plus and away games on CW61. Devin has become something of a regular on this show and we're delighted to welcome him back again today to talk about Phoenix Rising, specifically our new signing, our striker, Darren Maddox. We've got two other special guests with us today to celebrate our 20th anniversary episode. On the panel to review Phoenix Rising's away game against Tacoma Defiance is Jake Anderson. Jake covers Phoenix Rising for local radio stations Arizona Sports 98.7 FM and KTAR 92.3 FM. You can follow Jake on Twitter at JWA1994 and read his articles on ArizonaSports.com. Jake is also the host of Phoenix Rising's official podcast, which is called Uprising Podcast. This is Jake's first time coming on the fan experience and we're delighted to have him. Our other guest is also new to the show, and I'm delighted to welcome analytics specialist John Morrissey, who is joining us today to kick off what I hope will be many segments focusing on the technical side of Phoenix Rising's game. If you're on Twitter, you've probably seen John's amazing analysis videos he puts out under the handle at USL Tactics. John did a special segment all about Phoenix Rising just for you, Phoenix Rising family. He has a wealth of information to share that will add to your knowledge base and help with your appreciation and understanding of the game. I'm going to start off the show with John. It gets pretty intense, so if you're driving, you might want to pull over, get out a pen and paper and take notes. Just kidding, but don't blame me if you get into a fender bender. After John's segment, we'll hear from Kelly McCarthy and Jake Anderson, who break down Phoenix Rising's away game against Tacoma Defiance. After that, you'll hear from Devin Kerr, and finally, it's USL standings and highlights and a preview of our next game, an away game to Los Dos on September the 11th. Enjoy the show, Phoenix Rising family. Here's John Morrissey from USL Tactics to kick us off. Hey John, we would love it if you talked to us about how Phoenix Rising sets up tactically, specifically focusing on attacking and defensive formations. So as anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure knows, Phoenix really operates out of a 4-3-3 as their basic setup, and we'll get into the specifics of that a little later. But really their guiding uh, philosophy is to keep high field position and to pin their opponents back where they're unable to generate shots. And so in order to do so, you'll see them press high, you'll see them try to possess the ball a lot. And because of that, uh, Phoenix is in the 70th percentile across the league for ball possession with an average possession of about 50%. Additionally, they lead the league in key passes per forward pass, which goes to show that they generate a lot of shots relative to the amount of passes that they're playing up the pitch. And that sort of represents the fact that The players they have are very creative. They keep possession in those high areas. They have the opportunity to be generating those shots. But additionally, Phoenix is in the 60th percentile for the percent of their passes that go long. Low passes on the ground, they're direct, but they're intentional. And so this is a team that tries to control the game, move into that final third, and play on from there. So I did want to start 
in terms of the deep dive with that base 4-3-3 defense. Often you'll see the midfield five uh, come about from that with wingers like Santimoar, Sullivan Sante dropping into the midfield. Uh, Kavon Lambert or whoever is playing as that more defensive-minded holding midfielder will sort of sit in front of the center backs. So you have the line of four with the center backs and fullbacks. That DM player, your Kavon Lambert, that line of four above that, and then the striker. So formerly Dadashov, now maybe Egbo or Maddox, you get the 4-1-4-1. But because of that shape, you're getting three center uh, central midfielders. So you're never outnumbered in the middle. No one plays with four CMs, except occasionally Pittsburgh, if they're being weird. But um, you also have good support in width. The fullbacks for Phoenix don't really press up that high, but just getting that extra presence is a huge benefit. So uh, take, for example, Solomon Asante, who, despite being one of the most fierce offensive players in all of USL, is still in the 57th percentile for defensive actions above average for a forward, which is really uh, a boon for this side. In terms of the pressure system, it often comes out of a front five with that forward line of three. So take like your Moar, Egbo, uh, Asante group, and then two midfielders behind that. So think about like John Vaccaro, Aiden Quinn, that sort of thing. Both of them, in fact, those two central midfielders are roughly average in defensive actions while also being in the 80th percentile or better in terms of expected goals. And so um, they try to cut off passes, they try to win the ball, and Phoenix does so at a very good rate. Attacking-wise, it's really a 2-3-5 shape that can look like a 3-2-5 or so in build-up. Kavon Lambert, again, really a key player, but it's that DM role who can drop between the two center backs or play higher up the pitch in the same line with the fullbacks. So think about that two versus three at the back. Um, in terms of long passing, I mentioned that earlier, but Phoenix is also uh, about average in terms of goalies taking long goal kicks. And so this team really puts some value on those second balls, those knockdowns, which they win a lot. And then suddenly you have the ball in the field, you're sustaining that high field position. You also get some interchange with the wingers. So Moar and Asante could switch sides because they are both incredibly strong on their feet. Um, fullback positioning is something that we should note as well. The fullbacks, think Darnell King, don't really get that high up the pitch, but they're always there to support build up as sort of semi pivots in half space who are there to win those balls if there's a clearance, uh, just support the attack. The crossing really isn't a huge thing for them, but they're still important players. And so overall within this system, uh, Phoenix is perennially a top team in the USL. They have the best league's best goal difference, the best shots on target margin. And as you can tell with like those possession stats, they're able to really effectively employ these tactics. And so, yeah. John, that's so cool. This is exactly what we want to bring our listeners. Thank you so much. I hope that you found this uh, useful and I hope to continue doing some of these segments in the future. Rising fans, I know you've questions about what John talked about as well as other tactical questions. So email them to me, thefanexperiencefc at gmail.com and I'll pass them along to John who loop back around with us in a future episode. Thanks again, John. Now we're going to check in with Kelly McCarthy and Jake Anderson to run through that crazy game against Tacoma Defiance. Stick with us, Rising fans, because when we wrap up with Kelly and Jake, we'll have a very special segment with Devin Kerr. Phoenix Rising family, when I invited sports journalist Jake Anderson to be on the show, I emailed him a set of talking points, which obviously included the Rising and Tacoma game. One of the other things on that list asked Jake to talk about things that happened behind the scenes, things that he doesn't report on. Here's what he said. Well, I, I chuckled when I read that because there obviously is some things that I can't share, right, that have either been sworn to secrecy or, or whatnot. Um, I, think I, I think the first two things that popped into my head were kind of just the whole experience of the final that never was last year and how, you know, all of us were, were making our way to Tampa and one way or another, we were all starting to get the inkling that this match wasn't actually going to happen. And 
you know, myself and uh, Ashley Oriana, who was my photographer at the time, uh, we were uh, connecting in Denver and getting ready to take the Denver to Tampa flight. And uh, my, you know, colleague of mine, Owen Evans, uh, he went a different route. He went Charlotte first and then the connecting flight from Charlotte to Tampa. So he actually made it all the way to the East Coast um, before he found out. I found out in Denver and, um, you know, the, the people that run the league, I, I thankfully have a good relationship with them and, and they were able to tell, I asked them straight up, Hey, I won't say anything. I just need to know, should I get on a plane to Tampa or Phoenix? And this was on the Saturday before. Right. And they were like, yeah, you should, you should just go home. And it was kind of like, it was like, I appreciate the honesty, but damn, like, we're not playing this final, like, wow, kind of thing. And, you know, the, the aftermath that came and how some players who had like a Darnell King had family over there. So he stayed and, and, and just kind of those things. And then the players came back over the next couple of days. Um, the only other story that I kind of have is um, it was actually the game before that. It was the Western Conference final after El Paso, but in 2020, where again, Ashley and I were, were still in the stadium, but I guess they thought that all of the media had left. Um, but they deemed us trustworthy media, I guess. And, um, now I wouldn't say that we partied with the team. Um, we were still working from our, the old press box setup, but the players were definitely partying. The owners were definitely partying on the pitch in front of us. And the music was blaring. I got a couple of videos from it. It was just, we don't normally get to see the players and the owners and the coaches and everyone celebrating with food and their wives and their girlfriends. Like they actually had a legit party on the field um, <laughs> for themselves and, and rightfully so you yeah, just want the Western conference. So I think being able to just kind of like share in that moment, even though I guess I crashed the party unintentionally. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess those are, those are two stories that I didn't really report on or share in, in much depth. And I'm sure you've got other stories and you can save those for your book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I've actually spoken to a few people about, so I know a few people that want to write a Phoenix Rising book, and I have said that we should probably pump the brakes on writing that right now because the the whole story has yet to be told. I mean, this, this team's less than a decade old. So you look how far they've come in five years. Where will they be in five years? That was kind of my my mantra on, on why we should wait. But yeah, I, I can't wait to, to, to write a book one day and just fill it with stories. Fantastic. Hey, Kelly is with nice us. Kelly, you, say hi to Jake. Jake, say hi to Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Nice to meet you. I know your voice so well from your podcast and everything. It's always interesting when you actually see someone face-to-face, -face, you know? Yes. When I first got hired at the radio station, when I met all the radio hosts, that was, I'm like, I've, I've heard you for 15 years on the radio and I've never actually met you. And even to this day, when I'm talking to him, I still feel that way. I mean, I've seen your face from like Twitter and stuff, I guess. But it's even more fun when you like have no idea what someone looks like, you know, and then you see oh, yeah. them and it's like, oh, okay, well, I had a different image, but. And it, I, I think it's hilarious. I don't know how, how much you guys, but like Jarrett Carlin, who is the producer for Bickley and Murata, he looks exactly how he sounds. And, and, Love that. and when you, I, that was what I was getting at is when you, when you find people like that and you're like, damn, like you actually look the way I thought you would, because just how you are and how funny you are, so. Yeah, and, and that is you, Jake. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. Sounds sharp, looks sharp. <laughs> Sounds good, looks good. Hey, Jake, I love listening to your podcast, the Uprising mm -hmm. podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to your interviews with John Beccaro, with, uh, I think you got Aiden Quinn when he was in the car coming to Phoenix, hadn't even played a game with us yet, had just been signed. Are you um, setting something up with Darren Maddox? So the, the, what happened with Darren was kind of, he was coming over from, from Sudan and, and he landed on Friday before New Mexico, or excuse me, the, the game before that, maybe it was, but whatever, whatever it was, we, we couldn't really get a full one v one with him. We, uh, we actually had to share the time uh, kind of in a scrum style at practice. Um, so the long answer or the short answer for you is no, I have nothing currently scheduled for a one V one with him. Um, but that was just because they had a midweek game that week. It was just kind of the scheduling of it all. All right. I, I really want to hear that. I really want to hear his story about, you know, going to Sudan, just going to a completely different culture, 
how it felt over there. You know, I don't even know if he got game time when 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 he went over there with that team. Um, just, I think there's a lot. To you're talk giving, about. We'll be a rich you're giving him questions. <laughs> I will tell. I will tell you this. So when we did speak to him for the very first time, one of the questions he got was, "What was your biggest takeaway from playing in the Sudan?" And his and he's standing up, right? He's just got done with training, and he you know he puts both his hands on his hips at that point and looks down and just shakes his head and was like, "Just never take anything for granted," and that's all he said. So. I would love to deep dive into exactly what he meant. Um, but if I had to guess, I mean, his career, he went from a national team player playing in the MLS to kind of, you know, not playing in a, in a, in a high quality league necessarily for, for what his skill level will allow him to do. Um, Cause I'm sure he was wanted elsewhere um, for, and for whatever reasons he uh, he's glad to be back. I know that. Wow. Wow. Well, that's kind of a teaser to that podcast. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, let's get into the game. Phoenix Rising family on Sunday, September the 5th, Phoenix Rising played an away game. Our boys traveled to Cheney Stadium to take on Sounders 2 team Tacoma Defense. This was the second time the teams met this season with the first game back in June being a dominant 3-0 win for Rising. Our boys won this game too, but despite the final score of 3-1, I don't think that anyone felt safe of a rising win until we heard the final whistle. Before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to Tacoma Defiance defender Sissoko, who sustained a bad injury just before halftime. He appeared to bang heads with one of the Phoenix players when he went up for a header, and it looked like he suffered a head or neck injury and had to be stretchered off. Our thoughts are with him for a quick and full recovery. Kelly McCarthy and Jake Anderson are with me to talk about the game. Jake, we were cautious going into this game as Tacoma were unbeaten at home and have been on a hot streak in recent weeks. What are your overall thoughts on the game? From a Phoenix Rising perspective, it was a big three points. Um, as Rick said after the match, it was a it was a game that they needed to win in order to prove that this is actually Phoenix Rising. You know, the the form we had seen them on, um, even including the win um, against New Mexico. Yes, it was at home, and it's kind of the kind of the, okay. Well, Phoenix is at home. Phoenix is expected to win at home, and let's see if they can move that onto the road, especially with the upcoming schedule they have. This was the first of five road games in their next seven matches, and I keep calling it a road gauntlet because let's face it, they they've had some struggles on the road, and and if they want to have that number one seed, they're definitely gonna have to get three points. And 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 Shaney Stadium this year has been a fortress, just like uh, you know Wild Horse Pass has. Um, specifically for the game, um, I thought I thought the goal that Phoenix got early kind of set the tone in terms of okay, this is going to be a kind of a Phoenix Rising esque match. This is the formula they love to get to. You can call it a mistake for Tacoma. You can call it good pressure for Phoenix. It's just kind of the two together. Phoenix is going to punish you if you make those mistakes. So you can't give Rising a goal as easy as they did in the first minute. Um, but I thought Darren Maddox has been just noticeably a different forward than we've seen from David Egg or even Rufat um, in the fact that, you know, Darren is older. Darren has a ton of experience and you could see that in the off ball movement. He never really got the ball to his feet a ton to like try to do something himself, but you saw he created runs in behind that you could send him a ball. He created a back post run if you wanted to whip in across to him. Or at multiple times, he would come short and play maybe a one-two combination play with the winger. And you have an Aiden Quinn who would then fill that middle space that Darren was leaving. And that's actually kind of something that we see sometimes at practice. It doesn't it, it, It's very easily done in practice because there aren't many defenders. Um, but it's just kind of, kind of what they've been going. And I think last, uh, well, yesterday afternoon's match uh, actually showed us that that's kind of what they've been missing is the movement from their number nine to be able to link up with the wingers. And, and remember Solomon Asante did not play and has not played in two weeks. So to be able to, it's just, a, it's a weird run of form they're in, you know, they, they had three draws and a loss with Solomon Asante and they take him out and then they just go on and beat New Mexico at home and, and Tacoma on the road, which no one had done yet this year. Absolutely. Fantastic. Kelly, over to you. Overall thoughts. You know, this was not a pretty match. We won. 
Some could say we won decisively based on the scoreline, but it really was winning ugly. And that's okay. We needed it on the road. We absolutely need that confidence. You know, moving into, as we move through the second half of the season, it's all about improving our road games and our confidence on the road. And I think we did a lot to achieve that. We'll get into it as we get into the game, but a lot of people didn't even have great performances. So this in a way was, you know, both teams were sloppy. When you have a game like that where both teams are sloppy, it comes down to who wants it more. It comes down to confidence and poise. Um, and it also comes down to kind of capitalizing on each other's errors. And Phoenix did that more. So, yeah, I think the main takeaway from this game is that people were, were willing and able and confident enough to grind it out. We got to win on the road. And I also thank Darren Maddox. You know, he's already come up in Jake's opening and that's just a big talking point. You know, was he a missing link and how is he going to contribute as we move forward? So for me, it wasn't the most impressive win, except that it was a critical win in terms of our confidence and in terms of who we want to be on the road moving forward. So it was a fun game um, and it required a lot of screaming on my end. So, you know, it's always a good thing. It was a treat to see the newly signed Darren Maddox in the starting 11. A huge surprise to see him play 90 plus minutes and absolutely incredible to see him score two of the three goals. His first goal came in the fourth minute. Tacoma were playing out of the back. Calistri and Maddox were pressing hard and forced a bad pass from Tacoma. That bad pass resulted in the ball landing at the feet of Darren Maddox, who was just outside the 18-yard box with his back to goal. He turned, raced towards the right side of the Tacoma goal, fought off two defenders and slotted the ball into the goal when he was face-to-face with the goalie. Yeah, it was just kind of the prototypical what Phoenix Rising preaches, you know, the high pressure and force you to make a mistake, catch the opposing defense not in position and stretched and let the, you know, the best attack we've seen this league ever have year in and year out pretty much uh, do their thing. And with Darren Maddox hitting his first start and, you know, he definitely, in my opinion, should have scored against New Mexico. He'll tell you that as well. Um, and so to he joked with 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 Wongera, the assistant coach, that he owed him two goals. So the fact that he did get he did get two goals uh, against the Comas is, uh, is ironic there. But yeah, just it's a striker who's has a shot in on goal. And that's what he's paid to do. That's his job. And if he can do that, if you can finish your chances, that this this Phoenix team might have a chance. Yeah, it was amazing. Kelly, I thought that it, it wasn't an easy goal by any stretch. You really had to fight for it. And I don't think that we'd have seen David Egbo or Rufat Dadashov put that away. Your thoughts? I agree. And I think, you know, again, like Jake said, this is a striker, a number nine, doing what a number nine is supposed to do. And I think it's going to be a good learning lesson for a lot of our front line right now. You know, this is about confidence. We have the skills. What he displayed was not skillful. No offense. You know, he gave a hip check basically to get himself a little bit more free. This is just killer instinct. This is just wanting it more and knowing with confidence that you can score that goal because you can, it's not that difficult. I mean, not to take anything away from him or anyone who doesn't score, but my point is this ha- this comes down to confidence and knowing your role in the team. We capitalized on a mistake that they made that high press from the rest of the team was really effective. And he just said, I am going to score. Jake, you know, gave us a little insight that he'd said, I'm going to score twice and that's what it takes. And so I think we've been missing a little bit of confidence up front. And when someone new comes to the team, it forces you to start being more creative. It forces you to play a little bit differently and it forces you to put trust in that player. And that's just kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, he was confident and I think it's going to raise the confidence level of everyone on the team. And I think we saw a little bit of that on Sunday night. Awesome. Awesome. In the 33rd minute, Aiden Quinn had a corner from the right side. He sent the ball to the far post. Darren Maddox connects and redirects it into goal. A fantastic header. Number two from Darren Maddox. Jake, I'm not sure that we can load on enough praise even for Darren Maddox. The big thing I saw when that goal went in is obviously the keeper came out and missed the ball. But I want to push that to the side because... An aerial threat is something I think that Phoenix has been missing since Adam John. I think they've been trying to find someone who could both play with their back to goal and have an aerial uh, threat for you. And I think Darren might be that. I don't want to go completely overboard with after just one match, but you know, being able to whip a ball in both aerially or for a cutback allows multiple options. So to see that 
regardless if the keeper missed it or not, he still has to get on the end of it, has to get it on target, has to beat out his man that's marking him. And just to see him do that, to know that it's possible with that much force and accuracy, it, it, it's very encouraging going forward. And, and in terms of the game itself, there's no better start in your first start than, than a break. Absolutely. Two minutes later, we saw the third goal. It was another set piece, another header, but this time it was from Tacoma. Their midfielder, Dani Yeva, took a free kick a few yards outside the big box, nicely delivered to their goal scorer and the team's talisman, Sam Adidaran. Adidaran wasn't very close to goal, but 12 yards out, yards out, he got a powerful and well-directed header to the ball and sent it sailing past our goalie, Andre Rawls. How are you feeling after that, Kelly? This is, I'm glad you asked me about that because it allows me to go back to the other goal as well because they were kind of similar. You know, these are set pieces and your, your aerial game, as Jake mentioned, is so important during these set pieces. So in this case, you know, they had, I think they said five target men over six feet in their set pieces. So as Jake mentioned, we're not a very tall team necessarily, especially as you look at different parts of the pitch. So this is really hard to avoid. I mean, sometimes I hate to say it, but there's sometimes not a ton that you can do on these set pieces. You know, we're not that tall. And I think the point is that you have to be a lot more intentional in the air with your head. That's what we saw from Darren Maddox in goal number two for Phoenix Rising. You know, a lot of times on our set pieces, we see people jump up with best of intentions to try and get their head on the ball. That's only half the game. You have to actually direct it with intention. We saw that from Maddox. And then we saw that from my dinner on in goal three for them. So, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, I, you know, it's a bit of a mixer there. And I just think they were taller. They had more targets. And I did run is fantastic. You know, by and large, our defense did a great job shutting him down on Sunday. But this was just one of those things. He was taller. He was there. He was intentional. And there wasn't a whole lot that we could do. This doesn't really speak to that. But I've been saying over the last couple of podcasts, I think we need to be more effective man marking in our box. I mean, again, this is a set piece. You know, it's very challenging. We maybe were doing that. But it's just another opportunity to mention, you know, we have to be really, really conscious of those threatening players when we're, our, when we're in our 18. And that's kind of what we saw here. Going into the second half, we were up 2-1. With the second half came a second yellow card delivered to Josh Atencio for a foul on Arturo Rodriguez. How'd you feel at that point, Jake? I mean, obviously, when you see the team that's trailing go down a man, you kind of think, okay, well, that's, that might be it. But I mean, honestly, I, I think I tweeted it out. Like, if you didn't tell anybody that they were down a man you didn't you couldn't tell like I mean they rising really did not take advantage of having an extra man they weren't able to capitalize on possession and move it around and just tire them out and and, I mean there was still a half an hour left right so you still got to play but I, I think it was kind of the mindset Phoenix went into that game is that wasn't how they wanted to play and and maybe that's why they decided to hey like that's I'd still just play the style we decided to play this match and kind of let Tacoma have the ball. It was it was really erratic at that point in the last 30 minutes. You just had a team that was down a guy running with you know their heads cut off, basically trying to just apply pressure and get the ball back. Um, but yeah, the, the the red card almost seemed to ignite Tacoma. If if anything, it, it I'm sure it hurt them obviously with with subs and whatnot and, and formation and whatnot, but it. It didn't play as big of a role in Rising's favor as you would have thought. Totally agree. I think we saw this against San Diego earlier in the season. We've seen it in previous seasons as well. We had Brandon Keniston on with us a few weeks ago. And we talked about when Phoenix is down a man, are they prepared? Or when, when Phoenix are up against a team that are down a man, are they prepared? Is there a strategy there? Um, because we often, we've felt that, when we're playing a team that's down a man, that we don't make it look like we've got an easy game to play. We don't make it look like we've got an extra player on the field with us. Interesting. Kelly, any thoughts on that? Um, just what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the team really prepares for that much. Um, and I think a lot of teams don't because it seems like it's such an advantageous position to be in. That said, um, and Jake alluded to this as well, it's it's very motivating for that other team when you're suddenly down a player. And keep in mind, they'd already had that pretty scary injury to their defender. Now you're in hyper mode. Um, it doesn't necessarily make you more organized, but it definitely makes everyone work at 150%. And that can be the difference in a game. So it's not always, I, you know, it's weird to say, but it's not always that much of an advantage the team with the extra player, you know, um, 
And I don't think Phoenix Rising is always great at shifting their tactics, which is fine. You know, it didn't harm us. It never hurts you. But um, yeah, I don't think it was really that big of an impact either. I will say it's an opportunity for us to comment on the officiating. I don't necessarily have a ton to say about that, but I'm not sure that was a yellow card offense, um, especially when the official knew that that player was already on a yellow, you know, so I don't know if that makes the official watch that player more and therefore more critical or what, but, you know, it seemed like a very gentle um, foul, if a foul at all, you know, so that was a little unfortunate, I thought, in Tacoma's defense there. Um, and we saw a lot of yellow cards. I mean, I think Phoenix had four, maybe all coming in the second half. So it was a bit argy-bargy, for lack of a better term, you know, and, uh, and I think those tensions running so high maybe made the official, the, why can't I think of the term ref, whatever, <laughs> just a little more um, um, liberal by with throwing those cards out. I thought in the second half, it was very choppy and the ref kept blowing his whistle. We, neither team could really find their stride. What did you think about that second half and about the officiating and about all those whistles being blown and about the two yellow cards, Jake? From Phoenix's standpoint, Everyone on the back four, except for Joe Farrell that started, got a yellow. Kevin Lambert got a yellow. And then Tate Schmidt got taken out for Ryan Flood. So I don't know if that was tactics. I don't know if that was not wanting to get down to 10 v 10. But there were a lot of yellows given out. Um, I don't I don't want to harp too much on, on you, you know, USL championship referees. They are what they are. Um, I, I think after watching Phoenix Rising for so long, I could kind of get, have gotten used to the officiating. But to go to Kelly's point about how the, the second yellow – I think it was one of those where if you saw it and it was the first yellow, you'd be like, eh, okay, like, I guess. But the fact that it's his second yellow of the match and that means that he's now going to get get a red, it, it, it's, it was one of those like, ooh, okay, like, I guess. But now, now this team's down to 10 men. You wonder how the ref would have viewed that. But potentially on that particular call, the second yellow, maybe they viewed it as an attacking opportunity for Phoenix. Not a not a, you know, free attacking moment that would have warranted a straight red, but, but perhaps that's what went through the referee's mind. But again, the, the referees from everything I've seen in USL championship over my four years covering the league, honestly, nothing shocks me anymore just because of what I've seen, um, which you could, you know, take that as a good thing or a bad thing, but it, I try not to let referees decide games or even, I try not to talk about them if I don't have to, just in terms of the way they can control a game or the way that they can let a game go. I mean, if you look at like a South American Cup game, right? If you if you watch Copa America, those games get out of hand physically because the players are just so emotional. And, and that is something I would always want to make sure doesn't happen. Um, I, I don't want to see fighting on the field. I don't, I want to see the game played. Um, but when we look at, you know, USL Championship, I think the biggest problem would just be inconsistencies between the referees and, you know, what is and isn't a card, what is and isn't um, a foul. Because um, a lot of times you're just like, that was called last half, no? And it's apparently an apparently different call um, in the second great, half. Great, great. Thank you, Jake. Okay, we'll finish it up with the goal in the 90th minute. It came from Santi Moore. It was Rising's third goal, and it was a nice birthday treat for Santi Moore. It came from a penalty kick resulting from a handball from Tacoma inside the box. Phoenix win the game 3-1. Any thoughts on that handball? Tacoma certainly debated with the referee about hands being in a natural body position. Kelly, what do you think? I have a problem with that rule and the natural position and how that and how that is ruled often, not just in the USL. Like, you know, I think it's really difficult. Your hand on occasion gets in the way. I mean, it just does, right? We have hands, we use them for balance when you're playing, especially when you're that when you're in that tight of a spot with that close to your own goal, like you're doing everything you can. So, you know, I don't think that the outcome would have been different had his hand, had the ball not hit his hand. And I do think the ball hit his hand rather than the opposite. So anyway, that's all to say, I don't think it was flagrant. I don't think it was intentional. And I don't think it should have been really called. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think that the results of that play would have changed. So 
So it was questionable for me, but you know, hey, I'm a Phoenix Rising fan and I'm delighted with it. And that's part of the game. And based on the inconsistencies that Jake was talking about in officiating, it does bounce both ways. You know, we all get these calls in our favor um, or called against us. And I think the important thing to note is Santimar, you know, and he took a perfect perfect penalty kick. I mean, all you have to do is keep it low and put it in the corner, right? You learn that when you're in second grade. So it was really nice to see his composure. And I think, you know, when you get a new player on the team, such as Maddox, a lot of people can start to feel self-conscious, especially a player who was once maybe considered the best attacking player on the team. So it's just really nice for me to see how well they played together. Um, but also just to see, you know, his confidence isn't going to falter because now there might be a bigger fish in the pond. You know, he took that penalty kick and it was clinical and it was perfect and it was his birthday. So I'll take that point. Awesome. Jake, over to you for some closing comments. I'm, I'm pissed because it's in my car. I, I wanted to show you my rule book I have, uh, the official UEFA sanctioned rule book. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because um, obviously in the United States, we do a little bit of a different calendar, right? So these rules were written for a season that starts right now and ends in you know the beginning half of next year. So United States leagues have not yet adopted those rules. Um, and all of that is to say that the new rules state that basically if the ball hits your hand, like in this particular case, if there were VAR, most likely that would not be a handball. That would not have been a penalty. They've really changed the rule to where unless there it's egregious, if the ball just hits your hand, if the ball were to hit like your shoulder and then your arm, it's not a handball. Um, they, they've really tried to basically stop giving away free goals. Um, I'm a big, big advocate of that because I've been watching City A for a long time. And I swear some players are aiming at players' hands when they shoot. And they were giving away penalties like, like it was free bread. Like it, it was... Can I comment on ridiculous. that too really quickly? Sorry to throw you off there. No, oh, yeah. Because the other the other side of that is it forces the defender to not defend well. We see it so much. People put their two hands behind their back in the most critical moment in the game. And I mean, I don't want you to not be able to balance when you're trying to defend the goal. So it drives me absolutely nuts. If I were to offend her today, I would just take all of those handballs because you're you're not allowing me to play my game. I mean, I think it's a big problem. No, yeah, it, it's just kind of what we've gotten to. Like, it, it almost seems that strikers are shooting. It's like, hey, even if even if it hits them, it might hit them in the arm, and then we might get a penalty. And that's not really a part of the game that I want to ever be a part of the game and have be a strategy because I do know there are some youth coaches that have been instructing their kids, just shoot it because it can hit them in the arm. And it's like, yes, I get that strategy for wanting to win, but – it's not necessarily the way I want to see this game go in the future. Absolutely. Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I know you've got other things scheduled, so we're going to let you go. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Yes, and thank you so much, guys. This was a ton of fun. Love awesome. to be back. Kelly, it's great talking football with you. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Niall. See you. Phoenix Rising family, we have a lot more to share with you, including an interview with Devin Kerr, Week 20 standings and highlights, and a preview of our next game against LA Galaxy. Hey, this is Ray Samora for the Orange and Black Soccer Cast, and you're listening to The Fan Experience. Devin, thank you so much for coming back on the fan experience. I've got a few questions for you. As you know, we just signed Darren Maddox a couple of weeks ago. So what do you think of Darren Maddox's game? And I want to give a shout out to one of my buddies, Dominic Kearns, a fellow Rising supporter, who asked that you share the full scouting report and analysis. <laughs> Go. <laughs> okay, so when you look at Darren Maddox, you have to understand the most important thing about him is to fit the system. And the most important thing that fits the system is his speed. Okay. His speed is blazing. He will fly by people in this league, specifically in the Pacific Division, but he's a guy who any level that he's played at, whether it was MLS, whether it was for Jamaica, he literally is a track star who runs people down and just keeps on going. The one thing you have to understand for the expectation on how that's going to look initially is, he hasn't had games in a long period of time. So not having full fitness is going to hinder his ability to constantly dig into the well for those runs. I would imagine knowing the training staff, the technical staff, how amazing they are in Phoenix, 
that that shouldn't be that much of an issue to get him up to speed. They've made, you know, no quarrels about the fact that they're trying to work on like a, a four to five week preseason, if you will, for Darren Maddox. So given the fact that you have that time frame in front of you, how quickly does that start to come into play? There was talk of maybe getting him in the Oakland Roots match, which he had been in for about five or six days, if I'm not mistaken. If you go five or six days from August 25th, you're basically looking at August 20th, we'll call it. So you're 10 days towards the end of the month, 11. You know, my math is terrible, which means that brings us towards the end of September where really you feel like he's going to be top-notch, really ticking, in theory. In theory. That gives you six games. Six games at the end of the season where, given what Rising has told us, Darren Maddox will be at full strength. What does the evolution, evolution excuse me, of Darren Maddox look like under Phoenix Rising? Because he's so quick. He loves one-on-one situations. He will run by anyone. But what happens when we've seen so many times before when a team sits in? What happens when now Darren Maddox has to start to get quick-witted with his feet in small spaces as opposed to his beautiful long strides that are 30, 40, 50 yards long running people down? That's going to be the key question here because he's got a really strong left foot, but much like most left footers, myself included, left footers have a stronger dominant foot. Usually their weaker foot is weaker though. So for instance, a right footer is going to be more balanced with their right and left. Even though the right's stronger, they're more balanced. A left footer will usually supersede the talent of a right footer, but then their non-dominant foot isn't a great as great. He doesn't exactly have the greatest right foot. That's not the end of the world. Defenders are going to figure that out real quick. He utilizes his speed to the best of his ability to make sure that he gets it on his left foot. He doesn't lack confidence. If I'm not mistaken, it was the quarterfinal game. I believe it was the quarterfinal game. They played Panama in the knockout rounds of the 2019 Gold Cup. And we were covering it. And I'll never forget, I was on the call for the game. He had been on the pitch for like three or four minutes, tops. And there was a penalty. And he walked over, picked the ball up and said, I'm taking it. I'm the penalty taker for this team. I'm taking it. That gives you an idea of the confidence that is Darren Maddox. So whether he's in a starting position or coming off the bench, he never lacks for confidence. People might look at his numbers overall and go, you know what? He doesn't exactly score that many goals. I believe it's like 35-ish in that area, mid-30s over 180 appearances. So, you know, one out of six, something like that. Not even one out of seven. But... The most important thing you need to remember about him is he had eight goals in 14 games under DC United in 2018. And then Wayne Rooney showed up and then he got like 115, 120 minutes over the next 15 appearances of the season. So averaging five, 10, 15 minutes in appearance, that's not really that much. That's not fair to a player like him. He's the type of player who needs his ego stroked on the field and he will do everything for you. So I'm curious what it looks like tactically. When a team sits in a low block, you know, you, you start to sit in a 4-5-1. You get real distinct lines defensively. It's much more compact. That's going to put more pressure on the midfield to create a little bit more because as they start to challenge that first line of pressure, you know, you get an Aiden Quinn, a Rodriguez who steps through one of those midfield players. Now you're pulling someone off the back line. And then guess what? That opens up more space for Darren Maddox. I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying Darren Maddox isn't capable of playing in smaller spaces. I'm saying that that means the pieces around him have to be more active in order to open up that finite space in front of him. Devin, let's get onto the back line. We have five center backs right now. We've got Toby Adewoli. We've got Niall Dunn. We've got Joey Farrell. We've got Manuel Madrid. We've got James Musa. And we've even experimented with number six, Tate Schmidt in there. How do you feel about our, our center backs? How do you feel about our back line? I feel a lot better now than I did when we spoke earlier on this spring. Let's talk about that. Um, I can constantly have good conversations with Bobby Muse and Rick Schantz about that. All in good fun, though. So would say that at this point in the season, your back line has, has really made it out to three people. It's, it's Darnell King on the right, of course. It's, um, it's James Musa and it's Joey Farrell. And those are your three. Actually feel like left back has now become kind of the Achilles heel. You can see it in the fluctuation where... It became Tate Schmidt's shirt. And then 
it's his performances have sort of been up and down and dwindled a little bit. The Tate Schmidt experiment actually started at Real Salt Lake and they started moving him in there in preseason. I got an opportunity to see him multiple times. I believe it was Sporting Kansas City, Rapids and Galaxy. Two out of the three, three out of three, one out of the three. They played them is the most important thing and, and saw him there. Still feel like Tate Schmidt's best position is a wingback style role. It gives him the ability to help you cover defensively, but doesn't put all the onus on his defensive abilities. He can help you out going forward, but he doesn't have to be that guy. That's where he was the most successful for the Monarchs in their championship run in 2019. Now, to be fair, there was great compliment on the other side of the field from Noah Powder, but the three-back system for him, for me, is still his best spot at the professional level. Rick will tell you, your head coach, that even coming into the professional game, what was his best position? You know, he was a guy, and we've spoken a little bit about this before, that operated as a nine in college, but would drop into a false nine, would play a 10, you know, an All-American. But Rick felt like he was going to be an outside back or wing back at the next level. He said that to me before he even came out of college. So the writing was on the wall. You had a good idea. How do you now translate that onto the back line that is changing? Is it the left back spot? Is, is he going to be a backup? Um, if I was a Phoenix fan, I have no issues whatsoever with Darnell King. I have no issues at this point in time with Joey Farrell. Again, I say at this point in time because earlier on this season, it was almost like he needed to be challenged. And whether it was his coaches, whether it was the players around him, his opposition, He's accepted that challenge and he's knocked it out of the park. He has become one of the most consistent players on the back line. And it's funny because I sat here on this show and said, he is, he is one of the weakest links. He is getting you in trouble. He is making poor decisions. And that's totally different, right? That's the beauty of this game is it's not about him being a bad player. It's about not playing well at that point in time. Right. right. And so now, now you've kind of run into that at the left back spot where Ryan flood has kind of been found out a little bit and, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Ryan is a, a very fast player who is not linear. I think he can invert himself and play off a little bit, but he struggles with his back to the play. He likes the ball out in front of him, and he likes to play in combination with his friend, the sideline right there to shield him because he can use that to his advantage, bouncing inside or out. If you look at someone like Josh Suggs, who's a similar player in terms of speed and a you know great service and a good strike, he has the ability to play with eyes in the back of his head. He can invert himself, turn around, and all of a sudden he turns into himself into a 6'8 for a brief amount of time. Then when you look at someone like Tate Schmidt, Tate Schmidt is more comfortable in those combination areas, but would say that defensively struggles to recover like Ryan Flood does. Ryan has great athleticism underneath him, and so he's able to track back and run players down, but also win the physical paddle a bit more than Tate Schmidt is. So um, funny because... That last elongated conversation we had, I mentioned the center back spot. I mentioned the nine. The team has gone out and gotten both of them. That's not, I'm not saying that I said that. Let's be clear. Those conversations were being had before that, but you've now gone out and got both of them. It's reached the point in the season where, okay, who is going to be our left back? Otherwise, three out of four is still not a bad equation. There are plenty of people around the USL championship that would like to have two on the back line that they can consistently rely upon. The good news is, is the fact of, you have one spot, you can you can shield that. Santi Moar tracks back and helps out a lot, so that's not an issue. You've got center backs that are playing at a high level right now. You've got a midfield three that have no problem doing the dirty work, and of course you've got Darnell King, who in my eyes is still one of the better outside backs in the entire league. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you see the goal from him last weekend? I did, I did, Oh, yeah. my God. So, oh and and my God. so here's a great story about him. Darnell King went to college at FAU University. So Florida Atlantic University. And it is in my backyard now. It's in Boca Raton. It's about, with highway exits, it's nice. It's about a 10-minute drive. Um, but I, when I moved to South Florida, my personal trainer, I, I had a guy who did one-on-one skills all of me, was on a full ride. He was a South African player, FAU. My high school days, my travel days at the youth programs were spent playing on those training fields. I haven't hung out with Darnell a lot. I've, I've had a couple of experiences with him, but most of my buddies that either played at FAU or played at USF, they all know each other. Darnell's a good guy. Darnell's a character. And Darnell, most people should know this. If you don't, Darnell was a very good striker in college. He, he lit it up a little bit, man. He can fly. He's, 
He's got no issues whatsoever with going in one-on-one situations. And that little glimpse of brains that you saw outside the top of the 18, the only reason you don't see that more is because that's not asked of him. He will fulfill that role when need be, but you kind of got an idea of what that kid's capable of and what a freaking strike it was. Let's go over and talk about the Western Conference, Devin. Phoenix Rising and El Paso Locomotive, they each have 31 points. El Paso having a game in hand. If these two teams were to play tomorrow, how important is location? It's everything. It's the only thing. Honestly. The only thing. Okay. It's the only Put it this way. I don't bet. And especially in a league this year that has so much parity, you can't. I mean, look, go look at my pick'em stats. It's you try and play pick'em this year and, you know, Pittsburgh Riverhounds who are playing, this is earlier this season, of course, early July, they're playing fantastic. They're on like a six game unbeaten run and they're lighting teams up and they go to Loudoun and lose. Like that's, that's the year that we have, like with all due respect to Loudoun, you know, it's, um, it's a year where teams that are supposed to win don't win. Oh, sure. You know, and, and, and and the games that are supposed to draw, like the other team gets blown out. Um, but it's, it's all about location. Um, I will say that the consistency factor is definitely better from El Paso Locomotive on the road as compared to rising. And I'm not talking about results that, that sit back and actually watch a match, break it down. There's a difference of what a team looks like on film, as opposed to what it looks like on paper with statistics. Right. And so when you look at El Paso, it's easy to look and go, Oh, they've only lost two games and you know they've only drawn five matches or 12 wins. They're doing so great. But specifically on the road, they're just better than Phoenix is. I, I would imagine that if you asked anybody in the front office of Phoenix Rising, they would say the same thing. If you watch their performances in general when they go on the road, it doesn't look like a Phoenix team that is going to win a game. It looks like a Phoenix team that is trying to survive whatever's put in front of them, right? And and so re- remove the Oakland game. I, I'm, I don't put any merit in that whatsoever because of the players that were rotated that you knew that was coming, but like, look at the Vegas game back in August. Remember that? I mean, yeah. they were, it, it was emotion from the beginning. Vegas get their goal. I believe Santi Moar had a penalty right around the 30th minute mark. That's as far as my vault goes in that game. But I remember, I remember Phoenix came back. I think Santi had a penalty in like the 30th minute. And I remember Aiden Quinn scored just before halftime. And that was like a surge of like 20, 25 minutes where they were really good. Enter the second half, they were aware for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then it was just survival mode. It was, can we sit and do whatever we can to get out of here with three points as opposed to let's control the game. Let's run another team into the ground. Let's possess the ball. Let's make our opponent adjust to us as opposed to weathering the storm right like weathering the storm is a phrase that's thrown around a lot but for phoenix on the road it's like they're dealing with a hurricane and with the amount of talent that they have they should be dealing with like an afternoon thunderstorm right i live in florida so that's an easy comparison for me to make i mean i've got a thunderstorm outside my my room right now and it's it'll roll through and it'll be done in an hour an hour and a half but phoenix just feels like every single time they play on the road it, it you know the one nothing at oakland the week prior San Diego, when they beat them one nothing, and it, it just Charlotte. I mean, the Charlotte game, dear Lord. But it's so it just it gets to a point where I don't know if I can remember in recent history a team that is is bipolar, right? It's split personalities, home and away. If Phoenix play at home, and I don't bet, but if Phoenix play at home, all of my money goes towards rising. If they go on the road and got to play at Southwest University Park in El Paso Locomotive, all of my money goes to Mark Lowry and, and El Paso Locomotive. It's not even close. And that's how different things are. I don't remember, A, I don't remember Phoenix being this different, being on the road. And B, I don't remember an El Paso Locomotive team that looked this dangerous consistently. Now, they still slow the game down a lot. and It gets a little bit boring, in my opinion, at certain points in time. But they're much more consistent than they were in 19 and 20. And that's a scary thing. All right. Good deal. Devin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Appreciate you, brother. Dude, honestly, man, I said this to you before. You guys get better every time out, but you're, the product you guys put out is really good. You're editing the way you intertwine shows and interviews. It's fantastic. Seriously. Cheers, brother. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see each other soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me on as always. Don't ever hesitate. I love being here and I'm sorry that 
my life got a little bit hectic <laughs> over the past couple of days. All good. Take good care of you. Yeah, you as well. Cheers. I'll see you, Devin. Bye. Bye. Hello, this is Juan Uresti from Nighty Mass Rising, and you're listening to The Fun Experience. Hello, USL Championship League fans. This is Kelly McCarthy reporting the latest standings after another exciting week of USL games. We're discussing week 20, and this week saw some big takedowns, a lot of interconference clashes, and even a few high-scoring matches. We're seeing some jostling for position in the Atlantic Division, which is something we expect to see with compact schedules and closely matched teams. The Pittsburgh Riverhounds are back on top of the division and the league with 44 points, having picked up four big points in Week 20. I mentioned we saw quite a few interconference games this weekend, and the Riverhounds played in one of those matches for their second game of the week, drawing with San Antonio FC on Saturday, September 4th. The Tampa Bay Rowdies, who are back to second place in their division, fared better with their interconference duel, and they easily beat the Oakland Roots, who are in the Pacific Division, 3-1 at Al Lang. Tampa Bay have 43 points, and with their strong run of form, we'll likely see them battle back to first place in the coming weeks. Third place goes to the Miami FC, who have 38 points and only need a few wins or a few losses for their opponents, and they can easily move up to first or second place in time for the playoffs. Miami tied with Charlotte Independents, who are 10 points back in the division with 28 points on the season. Charlotte is currently in fourth place, but teams four, five, and six are battling for that fourth place spot. And with only one point separating them, this is another position we'll see changing hands over the coming weeks. So I haven't mentioned games played in a few weeks, but this is going to become a factor at some point, especially if teams take advantage of those games in hand and pick up points. So quick recap, in the Atlantic Division, we have the Riverhounds, the Rowdies, Miami FC, and Charlotte Independence in that order. Before moving on, last week I mentioned, or I didn't mention, I questioned what a Riverhound actually is. I'm delighted to report it's an old-timey nickname for barge workers who would spend hours along the river, presumably working at steel mills or in transportation. So they're not actually animals, which probably everyone knew except for yours truly. As always, we have some interesting happenings in the Eastern Conference's Central Division in Week 20. Louisville City FC suffered their second loss in a row. They're still at the top of the table with 40 points, but Birmingham Legion are closing in on them with 39 points. So last week we reported that Louisville lost to number two, Birmingham Legion. This week they lost to number three, FC Tulsa, who are on a nice four-game winning streak with 34 points on the season. Before we move on, let me track back to number two, Birmingham Legion. They lost to Memphis 901 this weekend, and it was an insane game. I only saw the highlights, but I wish I'd seen the whole game because it was crazy town. Please humor me and watch the highlights. Spoiler, Memphis 901 was down a goal going into stoppage time and scored two goals to win three to two. The second stoppage time goal was a bicycle kick at the death. You just can't orchestrate a more exciting win if you tried. OKC Energy have moved into fourth place in the Central Division, picking up three points out of a possible six in week 20. They won midweek against Memphis 901 and then lost against Sporting Kansas City 2 on Saturday, September 4th. Indy 11, who were in fourth place just last week, are now in sixth place, and the center of the pack is still extremely tight in this competitive central division. So again, we have Loose City, Birmingham Legion, FC Tulsa, and OKC Energy. Those are your top four in the central division. No surprise, but the Mountain Division saw some extremely exciting games in week 20 as well. The big news is that El Paso are now winless in two games on the bounce. Their loss in week 19 was only their second loss on the season, and that was the end to their 10-game unbeaten streak. 
A week later, here we are, week 20, they tied with Orange County SC. Now they're still 10 points ahead of Colorado switchbacks who have 32 points to El Paso's 42. Kudos to OC for drawing against such a powerful team. So the Colorado Switchbacks, number two, suffered an upset on Saturday, August 4th, when they lost to New Mexico United, who overcame an own goal to win 3-2. So for those of you who are paying attention to Chris Weehan after his move from OC a few weeks ago, I'll confirm, yep, he scored for New Mexico United, and he did it in the third minute. San Antonio FC are in third place after their draw with the Riverhounds, which earned them one additional point. They now have 31 points, and they swapped places with Rio Grande Valley FC, who have 30 points after their draw this weekend. And that was against Loudoun United of all teams. I say it every week, but those interdivisional and those interconference matchups are so exciting. They shake up the field, and they really show us how the teams are matched within the divisions. So El Paso, Colorado, no goal this week for Haji Berry, by the way, San Antonio and Rio Grande Valley FC. Those are your top four. Moving on, the Western Conference's Pacific Division was off the hook this weekend. That's still a thing we say, right? Let's just shout the great news from the Rafters. Phoenix Rising had a great win on the road against number four, Tacoma Defiance. Phoenix Rising now have 44 points, which means they're tied with the Riverhounds for the most number of points in the league. And it also means they're 11 points out ahead of number two, San Diego Loyal. That's the largest point differential between any division's number one and number two teams. And while we're on the topic of differentials, Phoenix have the best goal differential by a huge margin. Rising's goal differential is 26, the next highest is 17. So which team do you think has the second highest goal differential? Pausing for you to think about it. So it's actually El Paso. Did you get that right? Or did you think it was the Rowdies? They're not far behind, there's a 16. So San Diego are in second place with 33 points after a pretty serious and decisive win over Los Dos this weekend. Orange County are in third place with 31 points. And we talked about their impressive tie with the Colorado Switchbacks in week 20. Tacoma Defiance are in fourth place. They have 30 points and they remain a threat with only three points separating them from number two, San Diego. Standings aside, our sincerest thoughts are with Tacoma's defender, Sissoko, who was taken off the pitch in a stretcher in first half stoppage time. Nothing is more important as we look forward to week 21 than having him fully recover and rejoin his team in good health. So that's a great reminder for all USL fans to take forward into your week and into week 21 of the Championship League. Let's all focus on enjoying the game in good health, with great friends, and with joy. Thanks for listening to The Standings. I look forward to chatting with you to report the craziness of week 21. And in the meantime, go rising. Hi everyone, this is Brandon Keniston, goalkeeper with Phoenix Rising, and you're listening to The Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family, on Saturday, September the 11th, our boys will travel to Los Angeles, California to take on LA Galaxy 2 Los Dos. This is the third time the teams meet this season, but the first time they meet outside of the fortress that we call home, the Phoenix Rising Soccer Complex at Wild Horse Pass. The last two games ended well for Phoenix. They beat Los Dos 3-0 on July 3rd and 5-0 on July 17th. As you know from hearing Kelly's standings, Phoenix holds the top spot with 44 points. Los Dos are in 6th place with 23 points and the chance at a spot in the playoffs is looking slimmer for them as the months progress. Los Dos are coming off a rough loss to San Diego Loyal, losing 4-2 in San Diego and as you know Phoenix is coming off a big away win against Tacoma Defiance. 
LA Galaxy 2's performance for home games this season is worse than their performance when they play away. On the road they have a 44% win rate, but at home that win rate drops to 18% with only 2 wins, 4 losses, 5 draws. Although it's not looking good for Los Dos, they do have some strong players that are worth watching. Their top goalscorer, Preston Judd, is tied for 4th best goalscorer in the league with 11 goals this season. That's more than our lead goalscorer, Santi Moore, who has 10 goals. Also, keep an eye on their captain, Jorge Hernandez, who has 9 goals. That's one more goal than Solomon Asante, Phoenix Rising's captain. It should be noted that Hernandez is leading the USL Championship with key passes, an important metric when evaluating a player's attacking prowess. Other players to watch for are Isaac Bawa and Jesus Vasquez. Obviously we're going to win this game, we've come out of our scoring slump, we're re-energized with Darren Maddox on the squad, and the word on the street is that Solo will be back on top form for this trip. All indications are for a 5-0 win this weekend, and I can't wait. Huge thanks to John Morrissey, Jake Anderson, Devin Kerr, and of course to Kelly McCarthy for joining us on this, our 20th anniversary episode of The Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Thank you, Phoenix Rising family, for listening. Please tell your friends and co-workers to join in this beautiful Phoenix Rising journey we are on by subscribing to this podcast. And if you want a better listening experience, listen with a friend. Check out John Morrissey's analysis from around the league. He posts on Twitter under the handle at USL Tactics. Follow Jake Anderson on Twitter. He's at JWA1994. Pretty sure that Devin Kerr is calling the Phoenix Lowe's Dose game with Josh Eastern on CW61 this weekend, so tune in for top-notch commentary. Lastly, if you've some time in your hands, check out episode 10 of this podcast where we interviewed Devin Kerr about his journey from being a professional soccer player to becoming the USL lead analyst. It'll make you smile. Thank you, Phoenix Rising family, for helping us make it through 20 episodes. I'm ready for a 5-0 win in our game against Los Dos, and I'll see you back here next week. And until then, go Rising! Go Rising!